This is RCT number 32, He Will Judge the Living and the Dead. RCT stands for the Roman Catechism of Trent. We are on pages 87 to 90. This is the Creed, Article 7, Section B. God give you his peace, in nomine patri sefidi, et spiritu santi. Amen. O heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasure of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse us of all impurity, and save our souls, O good one. In nomine patris et fidi et spiritu santi. Amen. My name is Father Dave Nix. This is the Padre Peregrino Podcast. Just a quick note, I think most of you listen on Apple or Android, but if you would like to catch up on either the CPX series, that is the Catechism of Pius X, or my VLX, that is the Video Lexu Divina, or even this relatively new one that we only have 30-plus episodes of, my suggestion would be to go to YouTube. The only advantage to YouTube is it has playlists. And so if you go to the channel, Padre Peregrino, and then you look at the pull-down menu, you can see something called playlists, and then you can actually watch it all the way through. So you could go to like Catechism of Pius X playlist, pull that down on uh, my YouTube channel, Padre Peregrino, and then you can go straight through CPX1, CPX2, CPX3, CPX4, all the way through. So if you're new to this channel, you can try that out if you'd like to catch up. And again, thanks to all the old school donors that keep this possible for everyone. The catechism today reads, Circumstances of the judgment, the judge. That the judgment of the world has been assigned to Christ the Lord, not only as God, but also as man, is declared in Scripture. Although the power of judging is common to all the persons of the Blessed Trinity, yet is specifically attributed to the Son, because to him also in a special manner is ascribed wisdom. But that as man he will judge the world is taught by our Lord himself when he says, As the Father hath life in himself, so he hath given to the Son also to have life in himself. And he hath given him power to do judgment because he is the Son of Man. See John chapter 5. There is a peculiar property in Christ the Lord sitting in judgment. For sentence is to be pronounced on mankind. And they are thus enabled to see their judge with their eyes and hear him with their ears and so learn their judgment through the medium of the senses. Most just is it also that he who is most iniquitously condemned by the judgment of men should himself be afterwards seen by all men, sitting in judgment on all. Hence, when the prince of the apostles has expounded in the house of Cornelius the chief dogmas of Christianity, and had taught that Christ was suspended from a cross and put to death by the Jews and rose the third day to life, he added, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that this is he who is appointed of God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Me again. So notice right there, it said that we're going to be enabled to see our judge with our eyes and hear him with our ears. I think that's so important because although God is spirit, we have bodies. And so at the end of time, when we hear our judgment, it's going to be also through Christ who has a human body, not just the Blessed Trinity, but Christ in his body because we have done our deeds in our body. Even our thoughts are not purely spiritual. There's synapses in our brain. There's all these different neurotransmitters. Even thoughts have something to do with our body. Now, for everything that we just read about how Christ is going to be the one to judge the living and the dead, I really like the first sentence and the last sentence for that little section we just read. Let me just repeat that quickly. First, that the judgment of the world has been assigned to Christ the Lord, not only as God, but also as man is declared in Scripture. 
So Christ as God, of course, we know he's going to be judge of the world because he's God, but also as man. And this ties back into the fact he has a body and we've done our deeds in our body. And then I love this from Acts chapter 10 when St. Peter says, They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. So you see right there, Jesus isn't just your savior. He isn't just your friend. He is going to judge you. Now, people don't like to talk today about Christ as judge, but maybe, maybe they have a good point because it does say in John 12, our Lord rather says in John 12, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Well, how do we explain this in light of what we just heard? I have a guess. This doesn't come from the fathers, but just go on my theology for a minute here. Let's admit first, Christ is savior of the saved, but we know from the Bible, he also died even for those who reject his gift of eternal life, since 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 reads this, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So that disproves the Calvinists that believe Jesus only died for the elect. No, it's right there, 1 John 2, 2, Jesus died for everybody, those people who are currently in heaven, and even those who are currently in hell. He even died for them, but they rejected this this eternal gift. So of course, Christ will judge all the wicked who will go to hell, but he also judged all the saints who made it to heaven. But in some sense, so let me let me make that really clear. Christ is judge and savior of all the saved and all the condemned. But in some sense, I think we can say he's especially savior for those who go to heaven and especially judge to those who go to hell. What determines that? Christ's emotions? No, it's your response to grace. John chapter 12 reads, this is our Lord again. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Did you hear that? Very interesting. The word that I have spoken. Now, of course, we never want to ascribe to Christ a passive role in judgment. But I do think it shows that Christ would rather be your savior than a severe judge. Well, how do you make Christ your loving savior instead of a severe judge? By first accepting him as savior, and then by living in accordance with the gospel. Now, of course, Christ judges everyone, even the holiest of saints. So I don't mean those two are opposed. But from that line in John 12, we see that Jesus really did come to save us. And I think sometimes we as traditional Catholics forget this. At least I do because I push the pendulum in my heart to the opposite direction of presumption and then I can go too harsh in the direction of judgment, even against myself. But we learn right there from John chapter 12, Christ actually wants to save you more than you want to be saved. And you really have to be convinced of that by that line in John 12. Let me say that again. Jesus wants to save you even more than you want to be saved. Again, that line I find so beautiful from John 12. Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But let's remember Matthew chapter 19, that young man asks Jesus, that rich young man, he says, what do I have to do to be saved? What is Jesus' very first answer there in Matthew 19? He says, keep the commandments. So that right there disproves Protestantism and liberal Catholicism that you don't have to like follow the gospel to be saved. That's insane. 
I mean, think about it. Someone just asked our Lord Jesus how to be saved, and his very first answer is three words, keep the commandments. And then Protestants have the gall or ignorance to say that works don't factor into salvation. It's right there. It's the exact opposite of Matthew 19, what Protestants say. But you know what else is the exact opposite of the gospel? That new document from the Vatican, Fiducia Supplicans. Don't worry, I will keep my next few sentences kid-friendly. I'll put it in code. Nothing can be graphic in here, but I do want to say this. What is so diabolical about those new irregular blessings? And yes, the word couples is in there a lot. But what is so diabolical is that it's the exact opposite of our Lord's answer that we just heard right there in Matthew 19. Because that new document is telling Christ's most vulnerable flock of people with a certain disorder that they do not have to keep God's commandments to be saved, but rather blesses them as, quote-unquote, couples in that disorder. It's right in the document, paragraph 31. This isn't me making it up. Obviously, such an assertion is from the pit of hell. Such a document as fiducia is erroneously saying to struggling people, Christ could be your Savior and take your sins, uh, but it's not a sin. So we are relegating you to be judged severely by Christ at the end of time since we're telling you not to give him your sins in the confessional. Do you realize how evil this is? What a severe punishment there must be upon the church to have such imposters hijacking the very teaching voice of Christ on earth. But thankfully, people recognize the voice of a true shepherd and they know this isn't it. That's not Catholicism at all, which proves exactly what Mary told us at Fatima and what I've been hammering about, about what happened in 2012 and 2013. What's the positive of this? Well, obviously, the most loving thing to do to say to anyone in a natural relation or um, alternative relationships is basically the same thing. Jesus came to be your Savior. Give him your sins in the confessional and stop sinning entirely and completely. And he loves you. And it's really easy. Well, it's maybe it's not easy, but by God's grace, it actually becomes easier every day. So make 2024 your year of no more mortal sins. Things might really pick up in 2024, even more at an external level, many people are saying right now. Now, as a segue to the next part of today's catechism, I hear Catholics all the time quote our Lord saying, you do not know the day or the hour when he's going to return. And that's good. That's fine that they're quoting it. But everyone forgets to also mention he has given us a bunch of signs and symptoms that will be all over the globe right before he returns. And that is the very next section of the catechism because it's called signs of the general judgment. In other words, signs that Jesus is literally going to return to this earth as lightning to judge the living and the dead. So we have to pay attention to these signs in very strange days in church and state. Catechism again reads, The sacred scriptures inform us that the general judgment will be preached by these three principal signs. The preaching of the gospel throughout the world, a falling away from the faith, and the coming of Antichrist. This gospel of the kingdom, says our Lord, shall be preached in the whole world for a testimony to all nations, and then shall the consummation come, Matthew 24. The apostle also admonishes us that we be not seduced by anyone as if the day of the Lord were hand, for unless there come a revolt first and the man of sin be revealed, 2 Thessalonians 2, the judgment will not come. Okay, me again here. 
If you look at my blog, you can figure out who I think is the man of lawlessness from 2 Thessalonians 2. Not going to go into that today. And since we're going backwards of those three, let's look at the second of the three, and that's the falling away from the faith. The New Catechism even mentions the falling away from the faith and the great persecution of many Catholics. Now, a lot of traditional Catholics, you've heard me say this a dozen times, so I'll make it quick. Many traditional Catholics forget that we do have countless, countless, countless martyrs in the Middle East and the Far East. And just because they're not going to Latin Mass doesn't mean they're not martyrs. There are, there are thousands of martyrs constantly. Just look at the news in Nigeria. They are Catholics. They're being martyred just because they're not at the traditional Latin Mass does not mean they're not martyrs. Or put it in the positive, they are martyrs. So we do see um, an enormous persecution. In fact, you've heard me say this before. Uh, a Philadelphia Catholic production showed that we've had 70 million Christian martyrs in 2,000 years. 45.5 million of those have happened the last 100 years. So literally most, 45 million of the last 70 million of over 2,000 years, 45 million have happened over the last 100 years. So we obviously have that persecution. How about the falling away from the faith from people who do say they're Catholic? Well, we clearly have that. Uh, the falling of the faith will happen. Falling away from the faith will happen before Christ returns. Keep in mind, we just talked about fiducia supplicans. That is not the falling away from the faith. That is the engine light being on to tell us that all the people we called in the 1980s crazy for saying, yeah, the third secret of Fatima is actually not a, not a pope being shot, but it's the apostasy of Catholics from the top down. Wow, they're really getting vindicated in all of this. Papal questions aside, we, we have really good evidence now. The third secret of Fatima really must be that there would be an apostasy from the top down. And this ties so closely to what we just heard in the catechism. There would be a falling away from the faith. All right, now how about this part, the preaching of the gospel throughout the whole world? We talked about this one before. I think this means every nation has to have some Christians before Christ returns, but it doesn't necessarily mean that there are nice Gothic, Gothic churches built everywhere. Both would be nice to have both great preaching and cool churches everywhere, but I don't think the latter is necessary for Christ to return. Actually, I think we talked about that on a VLX series because Father Lapide left that as an open uh, question since it was debated even in his day. That's just where I fall, that some people in every nation will have to have heard the gospel. How do you like that for future perfect tense? Will have to have heard the gospel for Christ to return. Now, if you look at the seven ages of Venerable Bartholomew Holzenauser, we are probably on the cusp between the fifth and the sixth age of the church. Now, Holzenauser says that the fifth age of the church is an age of heresy and schism, but this isn't me being super controversial. That, he says, go back, goes back to the 16th century with the beginning of the Protestant Revolt. Well, there's a lot of people who believe we are now at the very end of the time of heresy and schism, and then the cusp between the fifth and the sixth age of the church, and what's the sixth age of the church? The sixth age of the church is going to be this era of peace predicted by Fatima. Well, get this. Our Lady of La Salette said the era of peace would be 25 years long. That gels with the fact that we will need a pope to accurately consecrate Russia. I'm going to make a video, or maybe it's already come out on this, because I've been talking to my friend Father Isaac about this and from his uh, new podcast, Getting Some Ideas. But again, we're at the end of the fifth, unless Jesus returns soon, like in like in 2024, it does seem clear that we are on the cusp between this age of schism and heresy 
Then we have the great monarch, the angelic pope, to bring everything together, renew the Catholic faith, hopefully uh, return us all to the seven old school sacraments. Consecrating Russia then opens Russia to all these miracles. Maybe God works this global miracle. What will the Russians have to do, the Russian Eastern Orthodox have to do to become Catholic? The filioque come, come into union with the church because the Eastern Orthodox never had a Vatican II and they never changed their seven ancient sacraments. So very little for them to come in union with Rome uh, if we have a pope who consecrates Russia because Our Lady said, I believe, that this conversion would be very fast. And then what is the seventh age of the church? Right out of apocalypse, we know that's just three and a half years with the Antichrist. Even though the first four ages of the church were all like 400 years long, everyone listening to this podcast, including me, could be alive for ages five and six and seven. Why? Because we're hopefully wrapping up all this heresy and schism with the fever pitch stuff that we're seeing out of the church right now. Sixth age of the church fixes everything with Vatican II, all the popes, brings Russian Orthodox into union with us, probably global miracles, so all kinds of evangelicals come in, 25 years of peace, and then somehow we forget about that, Antichrist comes on the scene, and then we have three and a half years before Christ returns. Well, that comes to 28 and a half years plus, maybe everything turns around in 2024, 2024, another, whatever, 25 26, 27, 28, 29, 30 years. And then we could see all of it. I don't know. I'm just trying to line up what almost every traditionalist is saying about Holzenhauser with what we're seeing in the church right now. And we could all be around for the Antichrist and the final return of Christ, even if 2024 is not the end of the world. The Catechism again, the sentence of the just. The form and procedure of this judgment the pastor will easily learn from the prophecies of Daniel. See Daniel chapter 7, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Romans 2. The writings of the evangelists and the doctrine of the apostle. The sentence to be pronounced by the judge is here deserving of more than ordinary attention. Looking with joyful countenance on the just standing on his right, Christ our Redeemer will pronounce sentence on them with the greatest benignity in these words, Come, ye blessed of my Father, possess the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of the world. See Matthew 25, verse 34. That nothing can be conceived more delightful to the ear than these words we shall understand if we only compare them with the condemnation of the wicked and call to mind that by them the just are invited from labor to rest, from the veil of tears to supreme joy, from misery to eternal happiness, the reward of their works of charity. Okay, me again. You know, usually in the RCT, we don't talk about Ignatian mental prayer, but I'm going to encourage you to do it with this one. Imagine yourself at the moment of death and you see Christ with a billion saints and angels behind him and maybe a million demons and condemned people far below his feet. And everyone is in this pregnant anticipation for how he's going to judge you. Everything is silent in heaven and hell. And then Jesus looks at you with the greatest kindness and he says, Come, you blessed of my Father, possess the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of the world. It's Matthew 25, 34. That one moment would be worth all the suffering on earth to have Jesus look you in the eyes and say, Come, you blessed of my Father, possess the kingdom prepared for you from the beginning of the world. That would be worth doing some Ignatian mental prayer on. Catechism again, the sentence of the wicked, 
Turning next to those who shall stand on his left, he will pour out his justice upon them in these words, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew twenty-five forty-one. The first words, Depart from me, express the heaviest punishment with which the wicked shall be visited, their eternal banishment from the sight of God, unrelieved by one consolatory hope of ever recovering so great a good, This punishment is called by theologians the pain of loss, because in hell the wicked shall be deprived forever of the light of the vision of God. The words ye cursed, which follow, increase unutterably their wretched and calamitous condition. If, when banished from the divine presence, they were deemed worthy to receive some benediction, this would be to them a great source of consolation. But since they can expect nothing of this kind as an alleviation of their misery, The divine justice deservedly pursues them with every species of malediction once they have been banished. The next words, into everlasting fire, express another sort of punishment, which is called by theologians the pain of sense, because like lashes, stripes, or other more severe chastisements, among which fire, no doubt, produces the most intense pain, it is felt through the organs of sense. When, moreover, we reflect that this torment is to be eternal, we can see at once that the punishment of the damned includes every kind of suffering. The concluding words, which was prepared for the devil and his angels, make this still more clear. For since nature has so provided that we feel miseries less when we have companions and sharers in them, who can, at least in some measure, assist us by their advice and kindness, what must be the horrible state of the damned who in such calamities can never separate themselves from the companionship of most wicked demons. And yet, most justly, shall this very sentence be pronounced by our Lord and Savior on those sinners who neglected all the works of true mercy, who neither gave food to the hungry nor drink to the thirsty, who refused shelter to the stranger and clothing to the naked, and who would not visit the sick and the imprisoned." Me again. I mentioned before I was raised liberal Catholic, and I'll tell you, there was only one chapter we heard about in the Bible, and it was Matthew 25, about feeding the hungry and clothing the naked. Nothing but Matthew 25, Matthew 25, Matthew 25. But, in defense of Matthew 25, we just heard the Roman Catechism of Trent quote that same chapter, so it's of course still the Word of God, and it reveals that a great part of our judgment will be the mercy we show to the poor or not. Let's listen directly to Matthew 25 and who is damned again. Our Lord says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So right there, we already have the cheat sheet to the final judgment. You can't go before God and say, but I put up really beautiful pictures of the Latin Mass on Instagram. You've got to let me into heaven. No, you were just given what our final judgment is going to be on right there. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was naked and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Would it no one listening to this podcast ever hear that? But you have, I shouldn't call it a cheat sheet, you have the rules to your particular judgment right there in Matthew 25. So notice this isn't just 
social justice warrior stuff, how we treat the most vulnerable in society is how we will be judged. And of course, the most vulnerable in the 21st century is the unborn and the trafficked. And also probably those who are unwillingly deceived. Notice the word unwillingly. Unwillingly deceived by modernism. Which is why, yeah, it is good to put traditional Latin mass pictures up on Instagram. Because those are, just, I mean, at least that can tie into the spiritual works of mercy. More importantly, we must charitably and courageously preach traditional Catholicism while taking care of the poor and the unborn. There's only 168 hours in a week. Most of you are raising families. I don't mean... Everyone has to go join the missionaries of charity. But we know our Lord is going to judge us on how we treat the poor, the naked, and those in prison and the sick right there. And so you don't have to go far. You always hear me say this. There's probably single moms even in your neighborhood. You don't have to go to the street corner. There's a lot of people who do have homes who are poor in this nation who could use a little bit of help. And then lastly, the Roman Catechism of Trent. Keep in mind for this last paragraph I read you, it was written for priests in the 16th century. And so sometimes we get the notes on how they were supposed to catechize from the pulpit. I could leave those out for you guys, since most of you were lay, but you might as well listen to it. And we hear today just such an admonition in this last section from today, in this 16th century catechism. And it is called Importance of Instruction on this article. The catechism reads, These are thoughts which the pastor should very often bring to the attention of his people, for the truth which is contained in this article will, if accepted with faithful dispositions, be most powerful in bridling the evil inclinations of the heart and in withdrawing men from sin. Hence we read in Ecclesiasticus, In all thy works remember thy last end, and thou shalt never sin. Chapter 7, verse 40. And indeed there is scarcely anyone so given over to vice as not to be recalled to virtue by the thought that he must one day render an account before an all-just judge not only of all his words and actions, but even of his most secret thoughts, and must suffer punishment according to his deserts. On the other hand, the just man will be more and more encouraged to lead a good life. Even if his days be passed in poverty, ignominy, and suffering, he must be gladdened exceedingly when he looks forward to that day when, the conflicts of this wretched life being over, he shall be declared victorious in the hearing of all men, and shall be admitted into his heavenly country, to be crowned with divine honors that shall never fade. It only remains, then, for the pastor to exhort the faithful to lead holy lives and practice every virtue, that thus they may be enabled to look forward with confidence to the coming of that great day of the Lord, nay, as becomes children, even to desire it most fervently. Okay, me again, notice that last line right there, that it's not presumption to look forward to that final day on earth when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead, if we're really living the Catholic faith. In fact, we should be as excited for a child looking forward to his father coming back after a long time gone, if we're really living for our father. Oh, and then one last thing. Since we're all learning, I should point out that one thing I learned about the general judgment that I didn't know, I used to believe that those on earth when Christ returns would be just taken down to hell or taken up to heaven. But I just learned reading St. Thomas Aquinas that for a brief moment, even those on earth who are there living when Christ returns at the general judgment, they will briefly die and then come to life again in their mortal bodies in heaven or for the second death in hell forever. Please say in our Father for me, et benedictio Dei omnipotentis, Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Santi, descendet super vos et maniat semper. Amen.